Good morning. This is your host, yet again, Hacker Mike. And I missed you guys yesterday. I didn't actually uh, go for a walk. If you can believe me, I got the Minecraft bug. And I stayed up late, and I continued in the morning playing Minecraft. So I'll tell you a little bit about that. And um, <clears throat> we'll talk about generation generator functions. So <clears throat> just trying to get off the main road here. So what happened was um, in Minecraft, these things called monsters, but they're called mobs for some reason. And um, they will spawn or randomly generate it in the darkness, um, either at nighttime or in cave systems when you're near them. So they don't just generate everywhere, they generate within a region of where you're standing. <clears throat> There's different rules for this. Um, so, and there's also uh, some details about how they'll generate also in the sky, in caves. So I, I'm not going to go into that, but I'll tell you about my personal experience. This is on the Xbox 360 Minecraft, which, by the way, my son doesn't want to play anymore because he says it's boring because there's no modifications installed. He just wants to play the modified Minecraft. <clears throat> he really just likes to um, watch these guys on YouTube who describe the most amazing adventures they have using these different mods. And then he wants to reproduce those amazing experiences, not just play vanilla Minecraft. But he got me onto this game, and it's a super relaxing game with a nice background music, it's low stress, you can play a little bit, but what has captured my attention is, um, well, there's different uh, algorithms um, or different functions in the system, and basically you're modeling these functions and trying to understand them, right? You're trying to break them or find a way around them. So also the artificial intelligence, like I always like trying to break them and trying to figure out exploits uh, for how to crack them. So that's where it becomes a challenge is like me against another programmer, you know, programmer against programmer. They've created this function. Now I have to break this function. So that's kind of the challenge you get into. Um, so, <clears throat> I found this, uh, this cage with fire in it, and it had these little skeletons that were spawning. So this is called a spawn box, which randomly, it, it generates skeletons quickly when you're near it. And, um, it was deep in some dungeon. And it killed us. We got killed by the skeletons all the time. So I made it my mission to figure this thing out. So what I did is I dug underneath it a big pit. And then I dug upwards underneath it until I uh, got to the place where it was. And I opened up the area so that the skeletons, when they spawned, would drop down into the pit. But they weren't dying, they were just collecting at the bottom. So I had to go again underneath that pit and create another pit. Until it got very, very deep. And now uh, the skeletons will spawn and 90% of them will fall to their death. Um, the lucky ones will get caught on some steps or some protrusions of stones or whatever. So we played with that. And then I tried different things like... Uh, letting water flow down to try and wash them in and also uh, sunlight so it turns out that the sunlight will keep them from spawning 
so you need to have the place closed and the water just protects their fall so in any case uh, hours and hours of fun I'm kind of tired I've been playing it too much but I just wanted to share that with you guys that it's really a fight between, between people one person creates some function some generator uh, <clears throat> and the other person tries to, to crack it okay so the topic for today I forget this Minecraft out of our system is I'm learning Haskell again Haskell and um, I'm getting to the point of asking myself what is it that I'm trying to do so we talked about this configuration management system and um, <clears throat> so I thought well how can what are the different ways that I could um, represent my configurations um, in the system so I thought okay if I'm just writing a program like a Python program I'll have a list of data and I mean I'm reading in some YAML file some dictionary and it's got certain sections which have lists of things and I'll read in that data and then I'll do some operations on that um, <clears throat> and then we'll um, we'll spit out the output easy but now um, I'm thinking well what if the configuration system is a program right? and what if we uh, are running Haskell 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 and then we um, are uh, <coughs> instead of uh, creating strings so to say we're going to create types and instances of those types um, interactively using the uh, compiler. So there's this thing called the GHCI, which is the uh, Glasgow Haskell Compiler Interactive Terminal, which gives you a REPL. So you know, this gets into the question of what's a program, right? So what if we have the compiler embedded as part of the system to begin with? And we just define everything as types and uh, data in the compiler, right? So a host machine would be an instance of some machine type right um, so that's kind of what I'm thinking and uh, and then I could use reflection to iterate over types and iterate over things. Um, it's just a crazy idea that I had because, you know, uh, there's like the compile time and then there's the runtime. And Haskell gives you a lot of compile time checks, but the runtime is again normal. Um, but if I'm running Emacs, the compile time is the runtime, so to say. Like the compiler's on board. And um, the Lisp type inter interface. So I'm just kind of thinking what if we had a tiny embedded Haskell 
or something similar. And um, <clears throat> I think this is an interesting thought experiment to pursue. You know, and feeding data to to it will actually just be like you know, generating language strings and then parsing them directly instead of And I get, instead of uh, having your own language and parsing it. And I guess it becomes eventually um, eventually uh, you're going to want to re-implement or lift out parts of the Haskell system into your program that are needed if you want to make it standalone. But uh, I just thought it'd be a neat, a neat type of system. So if you're creating a configuration for some application, you're really, and then are going to create a class, well, a C++ class, like a type that particular um, app. So instead of having a string saying this is my application, it's really going to be a type. And then we can put all of the um, configuration information in there directly. And then you'd have things like different environments, okay, so we would have different aspects of that type, and this is where I'm going to try and see how I can model this directly in Haskell. So, and I've just been fighting for like, do I treat them as strings, or do I treat them as this? So I'm going to try and, um, for my first step, declare everything as if we're going to run a compiler on it. And I guess we could have a reduced prelude, and I guess we could create a reduced language um, later that just contains those pieces that we need. So we'll discover that along the way. Um, <clears throat> but for a configuration management system, the idea of having an instance of GHCI running in the background and then limiting the, the functions available to it, like, okay, well, we'll just strip out any system calls and stuff like that. Anyways, the jailbreak it. So they're creating a kind of virtual machine. And I guess maybe later in the end we could uh, I mean, really, all I need is the ability to go from a string to a type from a type to a string and be able to iterate over a list of types. So maybe I can um, also just uh, generate that or have some kind of template, templating system to do that or use some advanced language features that I don't even know about. So this is going to be a neat little A neat little experiment and thought. But I've set the stage and now, um, and also for the introspector type data. Like a lot of what we're doing is collecting massive amounts of information and trying to make sense of it and connect it. So <clears throat> you've got raw data you're trying to parse in or machine data you're trying to understand and then um, turn that into typed data but if we do that at compile time you know generate some type of language string in Haskell 
feed it to the system and evaluate it and then determine if it's valid or invalid and the side effects being some kind of object created or some kind of error created um, <clears throat> that might be a useful uh, property to say hey um, be a useful property to um, be able to run the compiler on data like even if we have a parser function that we could implement and then call so we can call our existing functions and I'm pretty sure you can do that in all of this in GHCI so you can call functions through side effects you can define functions and then call them and then you can um, Evaluate functions and see if they actually work and get some kind of compile error and then recover from that and then if it does work then we can script that out because in the end if we're collecting data from a runtime even if we're monitoring the CPU um, and we're converting that into instances in memory parsing it and doing something with it. It then becomes static. Right? I mean, sure, it could be dynamic. It could just be data being loaded, bytes being processed. Um, but then if you want to treat them as first-class objects and then continue to process them, So this is kind of where I need to even evaluate them. I mean, there's different evaluators that, that you can write in in Haskell. And I might just be showing my glaring ignorance of how to create interpreters and languages um, in Haskell itself. But the experiments, I mean, a lot of them, what I've seen on the, um, I guess it's just creating a parsec for everything, but in any case, we're going to, um, we're going to run this experiment and see how far we can get with it. I mean, it could be as simple as just generate some Haskell script and then run the compiler on it and have it print out. have it print out the um, resulting configuration. Yeah, so this is kind of where I get lost in my mind. Okay, so the next topic for today, I was listening to Steve Chernowski's um, Bridge Street episode, and um, he talked about challenges for online schooling. So let me talk about uh, my experience with that. So first of all, we went to... Um, a school where there's a lot of kids who are disadvantaged, so to say, in poverty, and um, they do not have, they, they're getting their school, their meals from school and so forth, 
and um, Title A, Title I school, so with federal aid. And um, they kept on relaxing and relaxing the requirements for the online school. And it turns out that a lot of the kids he was going to school with didn't turn in their homework or assignments at all. And eventually we got it down to, we had Fridays off and um, just returning, doing makeups. And uh, we didn't have to do any of the extracurricular stuff. So it was just math and reading and reach, I guess, some science. And that was it. So um, my son, he, does, he did benefit from the uh, reading and um, spelling. And he uses those strategies that he learned in school. He definitely learned a lot that year in language skills. But what taught him more was Minecraft, or what helped him on his um, <clears throat> self-directed learning was the computer and using Minecraft. So he would be, I'm teaching him to install the Minecraft mods himself, or at least to write down the mods that he wants, and then go to the computer and search for them and try and figure out where the download is and what version of Minecraft he needs for that and so forth. So he's able to do that on his own now. You know, maybe with some help, um, especially with the downloads, it's like, it's a real pain. And that's really something we need to work on is some kind of apt get for Minecraft mods. So, um, <clears throat> that's a kind of compile time analysis and static analysis. So we're going to talk about that. I mean, I have some plans for that. I really haven't gotten into it, but, uh, yeah, so, um, for the YouTube, Steve asked, like, how to get rid of the watch next in YouTube. And this is going to get into some of my previous episodes, but why are the teachers even sending YouTube links to anything? Right? <clears throat> so, let's just assume that you've got a... Uh, so, even if you use the embed codes in YouTube, you're going to get the ad block. You're going to get the um, watch next. So there might be some kind of embedded player that we can find that won't have any of those features built in. Or you can give it a YouTube video link and it'll play it without giving um, the extras. That's possible. But the other possible is that as a teacher, as an educator, you can use this tool called YouTube Downloader, YT Download. It's a Python script. You can install it on your Linux machine. Might even be able to install it in your Macintosh. And there's also web services. So you can just download that YouTube. You can convert it to whatever form you want. And then you can host that on your website um, with no ads at all. And you can prepare all the videos that you need for that. But then YouTube's going to lose all of its tracking of your and data collection of your kids. And I do have episodes on this. Uh, <clears throat> and then you're going to actually um, be violating the terms of service because they provide this quote-unquote free service where you pay by letting your kids get tracked. And um, <clears throat> good morning. And even if you pay all these taxes for the... Um, school system, they still don't have the infrastructure to host this material or even pay for the content, so they're selling you out by using YouTube. So I suggest um, that you look for content that you're allowed to copy, let's say Wikipedia 
like open Creative Commons data and then um, besides that host it yourself um, or create a, uh, a player for that and then there's things called like Piehole, which will block all advertising. Um, there's a new pipe downloader. But all of that stuff is advanced. So in the end, I think it's up to the schools and the teachers to actually provide a platform for delivering content outside of Google. Um, and also creating content outside of Google. And considering the fact that we've been, we're in 2020, and I'm sure that there's been billions of hours of content created that's all lost somehow, not recorded, not available, and not licensed for reuse, it seems that we have an enormous waste, an enormous waste of energy, creative potential that could have been captured and that could be captured. And um, really we're lacking in a mindset and maybe the tools and training. So as Steve said, he wants tools and training. So maybe I need to provide tools and training to educators to actually do this. But who doesn't have a WordPress site that they can upload a video to? So there's your tool. Go to WordPress, get yourself a website, upload a video, and pay for the hosting. And you're done. And there's other ways to do it too. Static sites. And if you want to submit Yeah, we're going to have to uh, talk about that, but there's definitely ways to upload, and um, what could be easier than some kind of chat program <coughs> where they could uh, show the results. Anyway, I guess... Um, I guess I'm going to, uh, now we're going to get into philosophy where the philosophy of the ivory tower of Plato leaving after the death of Socrates, Plato leaving in exile basically to go to Africa to wander around. The disengaged philosopher. I guess I really do need to engage myself in the world. I need to engage myself more. So, I think that's enough for today. Um, oh, we had a good uh, no agenda chat. We talked about a bunch of different discussions. It was great talking to everyone. And the uh, no agenda meetup is looking for donations. Sir Chris sent out a link somewhere, but they're looking for donations uh, and need help. And uh, oh, some responses for other people, I guess. I got some feedback on the um, the crate crate uh, curbcrate.com, and uh, Mr. Scott said that the Amway business model. 
So I need to look into that some more. Yeah, and um, I think the uh, Haskell compiler could be packaged up as a serverless function. should be possible. Oh, well, on a personal note, and um, <laughs> I shaved off all my hair. And um, I posted this. So I, I have been using Facebook more often to just uh, share pictures with my family so I posted a picture of myself a selfie of me without my hair and people went crazy I got a lot of negative feedback so I wanted to talk about this a little bit in this age of diversity I don't feel like people are cel celebrating my diversity and also just wanted to say that and also um, <clears throat> You know, if you don't like me without hair, then I guess you don't, you think I'm ugly or something. So, you know, you don't like my face, the way it is, the skeleton that I have, my big nose, my uneven face, not perfect. So I think that there's a real, um, that basically people are saying I have to mask myself, that they can't deal with the, um, true ape that I am I need to cover myself and hide behind a beard and long hair and sunglasses and women wear makeup and we're just hiding ourselves to um, so people won't see the truth that we're just a bunch of uh, primates So, I thought that was interesting. And um, I'm starting to think about uh, social norms um, and also, uh, you know, comprehension or uh, formatting. Let's just talk about formatting and. Um, standards for communication and even for code that uh, people want to see things in a certain way they have a bias and I think that they're expressing their biases you know um, if I'm not formatting my stuff in a certain way it's just as an expression of their bias in one way or another <clears throat> so um, that's what I'm up against and I think it really is a form of uh, control and ownership there's a bias towards making things pretty because that's a waste of time in some ways so yeah that's my whole new uh, theory that I'm working on. Morning, guys. Morning. So yeah, that's the uh, that's what um, that's what we're dealing with today. <clears throat> and with that, I am going to give you back the rest of your day and send this podcast off. So thanks for listening. All right, guys. This is a bonus episode. 
mainly for myself. I like to hear myself talk, and I'm recording it. I don't actually like to listen to myself, but I do remember what I talk about. And um, in the world of digital assistance and artificial intelligence, eventually we're going to be able to process this. So I'm thinking about um, my idea for actually using the uh, Haskell. Um, using Haskell for the uh, um, the Haskell compiler. So I'm thinking no data type is too trivial. You know, um, everything that is unique is basically going to get a type, I'm thinking. And uh, we're not going to have data as strings, so to say. And we're going to see how far we can get with that. So, yeah, we're going to have parsers for consuming data and converting it to types. And then we're going to do all of our logic on type data so that if I want to construct something, I'm going to have a strongly typed constructor that has exactly what it's supposed to get. And uh, <clears throat> I think that's going to be an interesting. Um, it's going to be an interesting way to uh, deal with things. Um, now, if I try and put the introspector type data into that, um, and I struggled with this before, so let's just go over it. Um, you know, just reading in the data, parsing it like I do in Python. I definitely could do in, in Haskell. Um, <clears throat> and then constructing constructing types. So basically um, you know I have this field field has this value. Now that value being some ID that has to be dereferenced. Okay. <clears throat> Um, ID has to be dereferenced. Um, that's where I, I kind of fell apart. So if the language, if the string language, um, if the data that you're parsing is just going to give you these IDs, right? And then you need to determine later what that ID is. So we have a placeholder. Um, so in order to uh, construct a typed instance, this is where I'm really going to make some progress now. In order to construct a typed instance of something, um, we're going to say, like an integer type constant, it has a type that's an integer type, and it's always an integer type, right? We know that ahead of time statistically, the Bayesian model, but we haven't seen it yet. So we could have the error that it's just missing. So we can't construct an integer constant and fill out the type field until the type has appeared, right? And hey, chicken and the egg, the integer type then references an integer constant in a loop. So how are you gonna model that, right? 
So let's go over it. So this is where I'm going to have to also play with the language, but we're going to have a uh, integer constant being declared first or being referenced first, like the size. Size is an integer constant. Type of the integer constant is an integer type. Integer type has, again, a size. Chicken and the egg. Um, <clears throat> or we have a type declaration, which has a type. So that's kind of how it starts. Um, so this is where we get into, like, the syntax tree or the the, um, the intermediate representation before has been uh, instantiated. Everything has been instantiated. Um, <clears throat> so. First of all, I think we're going to create a special type of integer constant um, <clears throat> whose type is the same type as the parent. So we're going to have a different constructor for it. It's going to be a implicit type integer constant, right? So if you have an integer whose size is an integer, for example, like the break the circular reference, references, we're going to have to create a different constructor for that. <clears throat> so if it's a type that, another type that we've seen, we can grab that type from our memory, right? So we're going to have to create a symbol table and say, these are the symbols that we've seen. Now this is where it gets into the typing. So we need to do a pattern matching on those symbols and say, if that symbol is type of integer type, then return that. So we have a function saying, give me an integer type from this symbol. And then we'll return a maybe symbol. Or it'll return a exception. Like if we have to force, see this is where I think we have to do a maybe. So it'll return a maybe symbol and then we'll say if that symbol is true, then construct it. So we're always gonna have some kind of chance of a failure. Um, and this is where I'm going to have to get into a little bit of the uh, Python stuff, uh, Python, the Haskell stuff. But uh, I think we can make it work where I can implement now my introspector stuff that I've done in Python. I can start to implement that in Haskell. <clears throat> symbolic type information, symbolic lookup and dereferencing, and then coercion uh, and error check and error handling. And the coercion function is going to basically implement our, our typing to go from dynamic to static. It's going to do all the checks and say, okay, these are all the checks that we assume to be true. Um, and this could get really interesting. And if we layer this together, eventually we could come up with 
rules and pattern matching that will match the original source code. So we're going to basically create a Haskell model of another uh, person's source code. And that is going to also strip it of copyright. So we're not going to be subject to the copyright of that source code, even though we're going to model it. Um, it'll be our own work in terms of a copyright, because we're not copying it. Um, <clears throat> and especially if the data Especially if the data um, that's contained is it belongs to the user. So you have a user's program that runs through the compiler. Compiler does some machine transformation on that user's program. The structure of the data itself is created by the program, but the actual content of the data. So there's two parts. There's a generator function. That's the uh, compiler generating the memory structures. And then there's the actual data content. So if we model generator function using a new function, we essentially reverse engineer it it's not, we're not subject to copyright. We don't need the names. I mean, okay, fine. The names can be arbitrary. And the names can be read in from an external file so that they are not, the names are not copyrighted. So basically we're going to be able to strip out the copyright. Um, by looking at the data. We're going to be able to strip out the copyright of a compiler by just looking at the data of the compiler. So now if we get to the point where we compile the compiler and the copyrighted data is the same as the generator function so that We have the representation of the compiler in the compiler. Um, and we're extracting information about that. Well, that data could be considered to be a derived work. So that we would have to treat it and the derived works from it as separate. be able to do verbatim copies of it. So if it's your data, if it's your data in and the compiler just adds structure to that data, then it's yours. If it's the compiler's data, if it's another person's data in and the compiler adds structure, the data is still theirs. So the copyright is not Just the reformatting or the expanding of someone's data is not adding intellectual property into something. Okay. And the reworking of someone's. As soon as you have a human that has been observing something and doing a creative expression on it, um, <clears throat> so if I were to create an automatic translation from the compiler,
source code into a Haskell program that might be considered a translation and a derived work. Translations generally follow the copyright of the original. Now, if I were to extract some generalizations from that code, and then I were to reverse engineer it, um, and make a generator function that matches it, so I'm going to create a new generator function that matches the existing uh, data. So let's call that a compatible generator. And then I think I could claim copyright of that compatible generator. Right? Okay, well, we're going to do some more experiments with this, and um, I will uh, talk to you later. Okay, so now I'm just recording directly in the app, um, the Anchor FM, and basically I updated the podcast, and I have a new format for my podcast for my morning walk, I will start the episode with an introduction and then um, record pieces of it and add them as I go on the walk. So you're going to get a live stream, an update as we go, and um, I'll tell you more about that in the future. But uh, yeah, instead of having long pauses, I'll just make breaks. I'll record snippets and then just push them straight into the podcast. Yeah, I don't know what happened. um, But basically, I lost that. Yeah, so um, basically what I want to do now is start the podcast when I go for my walk. And then add in pieces bit by bit. And then um, add them as we go. So more about that later.